Salutations, listeners. You're listening to another episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast. And I'm your host, Nathan Holloway, your doctor for jazz. So our mission here at the Dr. Jazz Podcast to cure whatever it is that ails you through the power and the majesty of jazz music. In this episode, we are going to start a two-part spotlight on the evolution of the blues in jazz. Now what you're hearing behind me is what most people consider blues. That's the great Robert Johnson with Crossroad Blues. But the blues is a very complicated thing. There's many types of blues. And it found its ultimate ultimate laboratory within the idiom of jazz music and so in this two-part spotlight we are going to be taking a very wide look at how the blues its feeling its message and its structure so we're going to geek out a little bit um, has transformed within the jazz idiom and how there's been certain calls to kind of go back to that blues feeling that down home feeling that sound that that certain thing that je ne sais quoi if you will some call it just a feeling you know but it is truly the lifeblood of all jazz music but it has been twisted and turned and, and it's one of those hyper malleable things and I found it important enough to make it a spotlight because it's so important to jazz it's more than just a cousin it's the lifeblood of all jazz music so with that welcome to part one of the evolution of the blues in jazz let's get to some music Don't go crazy, honey, I'm pushing. Lose my mind. Yeah. Ooh, when you get 
I said, sit down and drop me a line. Mm, if I don't go crazy, honey, I'm good to lose my mind. Mm, your hair ain't curly, your dark on eyes ain't blue. If you don't want me, what the world I, I want with you? All your hair ain't curly, and your dark on eyes ain't blue. I said, now if you don't want me, babe, what the world I want for you? Mm, gonna man feel bad, good Lord. Sun go down. It ain't nobody to throw his arms around. Can't a man feel bad? I said, when the good Lord, sun go down. I said, he don't have a soul. Not to throw his arms around Look at you, baby, what you want me to do yeah, yeah. I've done all I could just to get along with you Look at you, honey What do you want for me to do? Come along, Brown Willie Brown I say I've done all I could, honey Just to get along with you I'm laying around here though I ain't doing no good I love you, honey, like a cow of the children I'm laying around here, baby, but I, I sure ain't doing no good You know the minute me like I was, I would seem like dirty my baby will step up, Lord, down the Lord, a minute seems like a I said, oh, it seems like that. Like you're going wild, You know, it seems like my baby And a step up, oh, Lord, I'm waiting. Mm, I'm going to the gym tonight and have my fortune told. I please somebody stealing my jelly roll. I'm going to the gypsy hell. I believe I have my fortune told. Cause I believe somebody is trying to steal my jelly roll. Ooh, I got up this morning, feeling yeah, sick and bad. Thinking about the good times that I once I had out so soon this morning I was feeling so sick and bad You know I was thinking about the good time Now that I am what I had
So we had to go kind of all the way back. Um, we started with the great Sun House. And he's just, to me, he's one of those artists that truly exemplifies the blues in his vocals, in his voice, in his, and also in his guitar playing. And um, that was the idea of the, the straight blues, you know. And after that, we heard um, John Arpin play uh, some of the Scott Joplin uh, pieces. Uh, there's a box set that's just fantastic. It's uh, almost all of Scott Joplin's pieces. And we heard The Entertainer from 1902. Now, that is known as a ragtime classic. And ragtime was one of those kinds of musics that kind of touched upon the blues. Um, you kind of hear that that blues, quote-unquote, blues bass line. This is where we're going to geek out a little bit. That dum 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 We all heard that in many, many, many blues songs, and many blues artists use that as well as jazz artists. But it's that's the bass line that occurs during the part that goes... So... What we have here is blues elements that are being used for the first time on top of classical elements, classical technique, European classical technique within the right hand. So, not to mention there's a lot of dominant sevenths, which, you know, I'm not going to claim that the blues or jazz, you know, invented dominant sevenths. You know, I've taken plenty of music theory classes to know that that's not true. Um, but my point is, is that this is, you know, ragtime was an integral part of introducing improvisation elements within the very, very, very beginning seeds of jazz. In fact, before the word jazz was even created, they would call it, oh, you're ragging that tune. And that meant that you're putting ragtime to whatever tune you were playing. So, that's kind of the, the first hybrid that was to become what jazz became. And it all kind of started with Buddy Bolden down in New Orleans, you know. He was um, one of those guys who was in the brass bands, the marching bands that played, you know, for social functions, etc. And I'm not going to get too deep into that, but Buddy Bolden was the first on a trumpet, not on a piano and not on a guitar, but a trumpet to sit there and say, well, I'm just going to play this this tune my way. And he would play march marches his way, which was ragging the tune, improvising, and he would also play blues numbers the exact same way. He would put these ragtime-esque syncopations and improvisations into it. And that kind of hybrid, that first hybrid, was known as, you know, ragging music, which would eventually become jassing it up. And then that was J-A-S-S. And then too many people rubbed the J off and just said ass. But... That eventually became jazz. So, the third tune that we heard was the Port of Harlem Jazzmen. 
and we heard Saturday Night Blues. And that features not only the great Teddy Bunn on the guitar, but also Sidney Bechet, who was also uh, a New Orleans Creole, who had amazing technical proficiency um, in that European classical kind of tradition on both clarinet and the soprano saxophone. But the thing that's interesting to note is that you heard such blues feeling. It's almost as if, and you can hear it, especially in that set, he not only has this technique, but also he is emulating the vocals that are associated with blues music. So this hybrid truly comes alive, and we're lucky enough to have these kind of recordings to where you can hear it. You can hear the blues feeling of the instrument emulating the voice, and yet there's also some technical proficiency going on too. And I'll also pick that track because just some great down-home blues feeling from Teddy Bunn and his guitar. So enough explanation after that set. Let's get to the next set. Here's King Oliver with Dipper Mouth Blues.
Albert Ammons and Pete Johnson, those two terrific pianists, are going to play their original composition called Boogie Woogie Dream. It has always been their greatest desire to play their music to a select society in a cafe like this. <laughs>
Alrighty. So what we just heard was a three-song set that started off with the great King Oliver, Joe King Oliver. And Oliver was known as a master of the mutes for the trumpet. And basically, this kind of took what a lot of these quote-unquote jazz instrumentalists from New Orleans took that idea of emulating the vocals from the blues with that kind of European, that's what I was saying, that European classical technicality, you know, those, those technical prowess along with the emulation of blues vocals. And Oliver went a step further in that he noticed that if he uses <clears throat> mutes in his trumpet and he covers the bell with his hand, he can make this quote-unquote wah-wah effect and essentially trying to make his trumpet talk. So... What you hear with Dippermouth Blues is one of the greatest examples of this and one of King Oliver's greatest tunes on top of that. So in the middle of the song, you hear that wah, 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 And it almost sounds as if it's a blues singer singing notes or saying words. So you get that. So it, it's no longer just emulation. It's emulation to the nth degree and that they're actually trying to make their instruments speak even closer to blues vocalists. So a lot of credit should be given to King Oliver for that. Um, so that's one evolution of the blues and jazz right there. Um, that we've been talking about, which is our spotlight here on the Dr. Jazz Podcast, the evolution of the blues in jazz. You could call it kind of blues. <laughs> um, after that, we heard Pete Johnson and Albert Ammons play Boogie Woogie Dream. So around the same time, Boogie Woogie kind of started taking off, maybe a little bit after the New Orleans kind of craze, but... Boogie Woogie was essentially the same kind of technical proficiency that the ragtime pianists owned, but it was also the same thing. It was very blues-based, especially in the progression and especially in the left hand. Uh, you get that same kind of 12-bar blues uh, with a lot more riffs, and it's a lot busier than ragtime music. That's the thing. Ragtime was a music that was intended not to be played that fast. In fact, Scott Joplin and many of his uh, lead sheets, compositions, you know, he, he said not to be played too fast. So, but Boogie Woogie was all about a much faster tempo and was much about uh, a certain feeling and a certain sound. You know Boogie Woogie when you hear it, even if you don't know anything about Boogie Woogie. So, 
Boogie Woogie was a derivative of the blues and that European classical technique as well. And what better example than, you know, uh, Amundsen Johnson. Oh my God. So yeah, killer. And then the third song that we heard in that last set was from the great Jelly Roll Morton. We heard the Dead Man Blues. Now, this is really a special evolution of the blues and jazz in that not only is Morton arranging and writing down everything, which is a very big first in jazz, and that should not be uh, discredited or ignored. Jelly Roll Morton claimed that he invented jazz, um, which is not true, <laughs> but the thing about it is he is the first serious composer of jazz, and he is the very first jazz musician to have written down everything that he heard in New Orleans. So what we have is that feeling of the New Orleans sound of instrumentalists emulating blues vocalists, but it's written down in paper. Every slide from the trombone, all that. But on top of that, he actually arranges in an intro of a funeral march sound. So he's got that funeral dirge sound as an intro and a spoken you know, vocal between him and another band member that sounds like they're out on the streets of New Orleans. And they hear like, what is that that I hear? No, somebody must be dead. So it's as if they're from the perspective of two bystanders on the streets of New Orleans. They hear a funeral procession. The band proceeds to play that funeral procession and then just like in New Orleans culture of a second line, the trombone slides the slide and they go into the blues. So not only is this significant in the fact that it's the very first time, really, Jelly Roll is one of the first to write an intro that has nothing to do with a 1-4-5 chords of a 12-bar blues. He writes this intro that's a funeral dirge and, and, and no break. Just a slide trombone, a tailgate, goes right into the blues. So that's a definitive evolution. On top of the fact, he is a cultural icon for recording and documenting a cultural part of New Orleans history. And that's the second line, the funeral parade. So culturally, musically, we have this complete turnaround not to mention and and i just as a as a disclaimer here an asterisk i had a hard time picking a jelly roll morton tune i knew i was going to include jelly roll but he is also very very single-handedly uh responsible for having that habanera rhythm in in jazz and that kind of minor sound with a lot of those blues inflections with that that caribbean thing what he called the spanish tinge so, Jelly Roll's, like, really super important, you know, especially in the planting the seeds that would grow a lot of different things within the jazz idiom. So, don't sneeze on Jelly Roll. There's a lot of history there. But, this tune is the one I chose because of its cultural significance and the fact that it's one of the few tunes that actually have 
something that's totally unrelated yet totally related <laughs> to the blues. Theoretically, it's totally unrelated, but uh, feeling-wise, yeah, you've got the blues of somebody you love or somebody who's close to you and your family passes away. So there you go. Hence, the Dead Man Blues. All right, you are listening to the evolution of the blues in jazz on the Dr. Jazz Podcast. Remember, you can find us on SoundCloud, on iTunes Podcasts, on, and as well on Stitcher. Um, we do have our website in case you want to check out these albums or go and purchase them. Go record crate digging and have a ball. That's Dr. Jazz Podcast, drjazzpodcast.wordpress.com. Now let's get to some more music. Thank you. 
Shemango Because I'm sad today I wish to linger Way down old Dixie Way All my weary heart Cries out in pain Oh, how I wish that I Was back again With the race In a place Where they make you welcome All the time We're down in Mississippi Among those cypress trees They get you dipping With their strange melodies To resist temptation I just can't refuse Into Shemango I wish to linger where they play those weary blues I'm going to teach you mingle Because I'm sad today I wish to linger Way down old Dixie Way Oh, my very heart Cries out in pain Oh, how I wish that I was back again With a race in a place Where they make you welcome all the time We're down in Mississippi Among those cypress trees They get you dipping With their strange melody This temptation I just can't refuse Into Shemango I wish to linger Where they play those weary blues Yeah! So, interesting three-song set, and I intentionally put these three songs together right after the Jelly Roll Morton tune, Dead Man Blues, that we just heard ending the last set. Reason being, you remember when I was talking about how Jelly Roll was one of the first to really put something that's non-theoretically related to the blues as like this intro as well as like a spoken part and then the blues came in with the tailgate trombone remember well jelly roll wasn't the only blues composer who was doing things like that there was also another guy you may have heard of him his name is wc handy born in alabama alabama pride and 
he is one of the greatest blues composers. He's known as the father of the blues. And he wrote hundreds, I mean, tons of blues songs. But one of his most well-known songs that's been covered by everybody, from Glenn Miller to Louis Armstrong to Bessie Smith and everybody in between, is St. Louis Blues. The St. Louis Blues. And that's what we started out this set with, was the great Bessie Smith, the empress of the blues, singing St. Louis Blues. And she had a trumpet soloist behind her who you may have heard of before. He was kind of making some important recordings and cutting his teeth and getting his name out there. His name was Louis Armstrong. So the trumpet you hear behind Bessie Smith is Louis Armstrong, and he also was on the Dipper Mouth Blues that we heard earlier in the podcast with King Oliver. Bessie Smith um, had such a hard-driving sound. It was very forceful. Um, The story goes that she wanted to, she was asked if she would come in for an audition for a record company for a recording contract, and they told her that she was not um, elegant enough. She was too black-sounding, quote-unquote. They wanted her to basically sound like Ethel Waters. Nothing against Ethel Waters. I love Ethel Waters, too, but they thought her sound was too rigid, too rugged, too forceful, quote-unquote, too black. And boy, were they wrong, (laughs) because Columbia snapped her up, and oh my God, here come the hits. Um, There's a great documentary on Bessie Smith, just as a side note, starring Queen Latifah uh, through HBO Films. I highly suggest that if you're interested in Bessie Smith and how she was kind of brought up by Ma Rainey under her wing and then just took off. You know, it's it's a great it's a great movie. Everybody should probably watch it once if they're even remotely interested in the blues or early jazz. But back to topic. St. Louis blues, uh, theoretically speaking, and let, let me just explain this so I don't get too deep, you know, uh, for folks who don't necessarily understand the music theory behind the blues. The blues, uh, in its most basic form, is built upon three chords. And you hear it a lot in early rock and roll, too, because it's basically the exact same three chords. It's built on a one chord, a four chord, and a five chord. Now, if you're in the key of C, C would be one, because that's the key you're in. And then you build another chord upon the fourth scale degree, C, D, E, F. So you have F, and then you have the five chord, which is G. So C chords, F chords, and G chords are basically the one, four, five of the blues. St. Louis Blues completely changed that in that W.C. Handy wrote this separate section all together in a minor key. St. Louis woman with her diamond ring, right? So... That whole section was just like a minor part before you kind of started these blues. This kind of blues progression with a 1, 4, and 5 chord. So everybody has to do it because there were words to it and it started out that way. So that song is important. And also it's very important to note that you had blues singers 
and then you had jazz instrumentalists emulating those blues singers on their instruments. Now, by the time Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey and those you know great singers start making these records, you combine the two. So essentially, it's the best of both worlds. You have these great blues vocalists like Bessie Smith, but then you also have a great instrumentalist really protracting that whole blues sound within their instrument like Louis Armstrong. So the combination is just out of this world. That's why that record is one of the, the top records, you know, that Bessie had. Now, let's move on to the second tune that we heard. We heard Basin Street Blues. This is in its song title. I mean, all three of these, you know, you had the St. Louis Blues, so it says blues within the title, although it didn't stick to the one, four, five. And then you had a separate section. But now you have the Basin Street Blues. And who we heard perform that was none other than Bunk Johnson and Lead Belly, live at Town Hall, New York City, 1947. Um, Lead Belly is a, a legendary blues guitarist. And Bunk Johnson is one of the men who actually performed with Buddy Bolden as a youngster. So he was there from the inception of jazz. He was there when he remembers people calling it, oh, you're ragging that tune. So, and a lot of scholars have said that, you know, if you really want the closest sound that you could get to what Buddy Bolden sounded like, listen to Bunk Johnson, because he was there and he emulated Buddy Bolden very much so. So, but this is kind of during the revival of Bunk Johnson later in his career. Nonetheless, we hear Basin Street Blues. And Basin Street Blues is interesting because it is a blues in that it takes part in its namesake, but then the structure is not 12-bar blues, and it goes well beyond the 1-4-5 chordal explanation that I just gave earlier. We have, for instance, a call-and-response section, which is... that's one of the tunes that really feature that. So you have like a lower voice or an instrument going, that's the call. And then the response is, they emulate it right back, like Marco Polo sort of thing, right? And then it, go, it goes on like that. Right? And then they come together. And then there's this whole other section that's like Basin Street is a street where all the folks, they all meet. And it's well beyond the one, four, five chords. You get, for instance, like a C chord to like an E7. And that sound had never been done in the blues. But yet it's a New Orleans blues standard. So now we're evolving. We are truly evolving. We are evolving past the point of just jazz instrumentalists trying to sound like blues artists. And we're evolving past the point of just coming up with intros or little separate sections. Now we are truly expanding the harmony of what a quote-unquote blues song is in jazz. And the exact same thing goes for what we just heard as the last song of this set, which is Tishomingo Blues. It's another New Orleans standard, trad jazz, Dixieland jazz, whatever you want to call it, that kind of standard, 
Tishomingo Blues, we heard George Lewis and his ragtime jazz band play that. Um, and George Lewis is one of the champions of the jazz Dixieland revival of the 1950s, by the way. Tons of great recordings, and I recommend them all. Um, one of the top clarinetists, period, in New Orleans jazz. But Tishomingo Blues is very much that same way. There's, it, it doesn't copy the Basin Street Blues chordal progression, so to speak, but it's well beyond the 1, 4, and 5. Typical blues progression. We, we go into some really advanced harmony. So these songs like St. Louis Blues, Basin Street Blues, Tishomingo Blues are all named blues for the blues sake, and there's definitely blues inflections within the playing, but that harmony, that European kind of harmony of not just your traditional one, four, five starts creeping into these jazz compositions. And are they blues? Yes, by namesake and by the actual feeling that these instrumentalists are playing them. But it isn't that bare-bones 1-4-5 harmony. And there's a lot more that's going to happen with that in the evolution of the blues in jazz. All right. Thank you for listening. We are going to bring another set of music for you. Thank you. Uh, don't forget to tell your friends um, about the Dr. Jazz Podcast. Please share and give us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes Podcast. Let's get some more music.
All right. Lots of cool stuff to talk about here. So three of my absolute favorite tunes were in that set of all of jazz history. We started off the set with Louis Armstrong. And um, we heard West End Blues. What's interesting about that is it's Louis Armstrong and his Hot Five. It's Louis Armstrong on the trumpet and vocals. And it's Fred Robinson on the trombone, Jimmy Strong on clarinet slash tenor saxophone, Earl Hines, Earl Father Hines on the piano, uh, Mancy Carr on the banjo, and Zudi Singleton on the drums. Now, that was recorded in Chicago June 28th, 1928. And... What makes that really interesting is, uh, first of all, you have Louis Armstrong <clears throat> with this kind of clarion call. It's this cadenza. It's this fanfare. And it's, it's physically demanding. It's technically challenging to do that Intro that fanfare that and it's truly the culmination of everything that we've talked about up to this point. It's blues inflections. But it's also immense technical virtuosity and prowess. On top of that, you have uh, a genius solo by Louis Armstrong, and then you also have him vocalizing um, a call and response with a clarinet. Wah wah wah, wah 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 wah, way we wah. So that's the very first time. Well, actually, the song Heebie-Jeebies is the first time, but that's a side note. Louis Armstrong uh, was the first to record, quote-unquote, scat vocals. So, but scat vocaling aside, uh, where you're literally making your voice sound like an instrument, right? Kind of a turnaround from our logic that we've previously been talking about. The thing that's important here is that Louis Armstrong is not the very first instrumentalist to come along and try to play the blues on his instrument with a, a European classical technical sensibility. There's been tons before. There's King Oliver that we heard. There's Sidney Bechet. There's uh, Freddie Kepar. There's Buddy Bolden. There's Bunk Johnson. There's tons of musicians. So he's not the first. But he's the first to truly make it an art form. His solo is something that is a spectacle. It's a spectacular event that's actually recorded on record for us to study and cherish and listen to and enjoy for years and decades and millennia to come. So here we are, knocking at the door of 100 years later, and we're still talking about how important West End Blues is, which is the track that we heard to start off the set. He is... And, and this is what one of the, the points they make even in the Ken Burns documentary. He's the Bach of jazz in that he's not the first, but he's the first to truly make it an art form. It's not just good time music at this point. Now, everybody who listens to Louis Armstrong knows that there's something special about that cat. 
and his solos are very thoughtful and they're very well played and not just anybody can pick up a horn and play what louis just played to the intro of west end blues nor can they sit there and and vocalize what he was doing in that there was some professor and i forgot who it was that said that they believe that west end blues was probably the most perfect song ever recorded so even if that's not your opinion that's still somebody's opinion and you should give it a listen again if you if you want just rewind the podcast you know but Louis Armstrong he, he he's cut his teeth in New Orleans he's played with King Oliver he started recording with cats like Bessie Smith he played with Fletcher Henderson and now here we are 1928 he's with Earl Father Hines in this in his hot five and he records this like landmark and it's a total evolution in that it's not just your typical one four five progression there's some altered you know chords going on there but it's a basic blues for the most part. There are very few alterations, but the things that he does while playing that is just amazing. From the opening fanfare to his vocalizings and his genius solo. It's a lot going on. And that's why Louis Armstrong is the GOAT. He's the greatest of all time. Is for that reason. After Louis we heard another great improviser, and I'm talking about one of the most genius improvisers that there was. Talking about Leon Bismarck Beiderbeck, better known as Bix Beiderbeck. That's an alliteration nightmare if you're doing a podcast, by the way. Um, Bix Beiderbeck uh, is joined by Frankie Trumbauer on the C melody saxophone. Uh, which was a, a novelty instrument at the time. Eddie Lang on the guitar, great guitarist. And by the way, side note, if you haven't heard the Eddie Lang uh, records with Lonnie Johnson, oh my God, they're just wonderful records. Totally check that out. You'll thank me later. Um, and uh, Miff Mole on trombone. Jimmy Dorsey is even on clarinet. And this is actually recorded, we heard Singing the Blues which is a uh, one of Bix's better-known tunes, and this is actually recorded before Louis Armstrong's West End Blues. Uh, but I, I definitely wanted to make a mention of Louis first, so that's why I put him first, if you're wondering. Um, Singing the Blues is actually recorded February 4th, 1927. So early in 1927. And the thing that we should... Also note, and, and I don't like making this, you know, uh, observation, but there's certain times that it needs to be said. Everything that we've heard up to this point, from Sunhouse to Scott Joplin to Teddy Bunn with Sidney Bechet and the Port of Harlan Jasmine, King Oliver, Albert Ammons, Pete Johnson, Jelly Roll Morton, you know, Bessie Smith, uh, Bunk Johnson, George Lewis and Louis Armstrong, Earl Father Hines, these are all great musicians, but they all have one thing in common. They're all black musicians. And it was a it was an kind of an unsaid thing, you know, at that point in time that, you know, jazz was black music. The blues was black music because it started out, uh, you know, as like field hollers in slavery times and all these other things. So 
here is this little white kid from Iowa named Bix Biderbeck, and he heard Louis Armstrong on those river boats when Louis was cutting his teeth, and he was so enamored with that trumpet sound that he said, well, I, I've just got to learn this horn. I've just got to play. So that kind of love for the music says that it's not just a black music. It, it's, it, it's a colorblind music, if you will. And Bix, you know, he was, he had a tragic end, uh, but he, he made some great records. And he was the first to prove on record that, you know, it's not just a black music. It's for anybody that has feeling. And Louis completely took Bix, you know, under his wing and, and jammed with him and, 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 you know, just loved being around Bix. And Bix just absolutely loved being around Louis. So it was all about the love. That's why I'm always saying that jazz is not this necessarily elitist music. It's all about love and brotherhood. As long as you love the music... That's what matters. And Bix's solo, and Frankie Trembauer's too, for that matter, is just these beautiful, melodic solos. And he didn't have that strident tone on the cornet the same way that like Louis did or King Oliver or any of these guys that came before. It was a very mellow, cool sound. But, I mean, it was just who Bix was. Don't let the, the, the mellowness or the coolness uh, disguise the fact that it, it, he had great love for this music and for its practitioners like Louis Armstrong, King Oliver. So, um, But theoretically speaking, since we're talking about the evolution of the blues in jazz, this was not a typical 1-4-5 song either. So this is very advanced harmony for the blues and to sound that melodic over this advanced harmony definitely takes a very quick ear a very strong ear and a lot of knowledge of your instrument and what to do over these certain progressions so it's evolving it's evolving from just a black music it's evolving from just a three chord kind of music it's evolving from just instrumentalists trying to emulate blues vocalists so we're starting to really see the ball rolling now you know um, and then we ended the set with uh, a tune called The Mooch by none other than Edward Kennedy Ellington another one of the goats another one of the greatest of all time um, interesting note about that so Louis Armstrong I told you recorded West End Blues, and let me find it here, uh, June 28th, 1928. Well, Duke Ellington recorded The Mooch on October 1st, 1928. And it's not a small group. It's a relatively big group. Uh, Duke Ellington was not only the composer of that song, uh, but he was also the piano player, the arranger. Arthur Wetzel, Bubber Miley were the trumpets. Tr Tricky Sam Nanton was on trombone. Johnny Hodges was on clarinet, soprano, and alto saxophones. Harry Carney was on clarinet, tenor saxophone. Fred Guy was on banjo. Lonnie Johnson, who I just mentioned, by the way, was on guitar. 
Wellman Bro, the New Orleans bassist, was with him on bass, Sonny Greer on drums, and Baby Cox was on the vocal. Now, what makes that interesting is, and I'm going to try to keep it concise because I know I've been talking for quite a while here, quite a while here, but um, there's a lot of information to throw at y'all. You had Bubber Miley bringing a new dimension to jazz trumpet playing in that he had that growling plunger mute sound, that wah-wah-wah sort of thing. And that became one of the staples of Duke Ellington's music. So they called it jungle music, which is a very derogatory term, I think, um, based on their ignorance back then. But um, that was one of the selling you know, uh, buzzwords for Duke Ellington back in the, the 20s when he was doing his Cotton Club residency in Harlem. But not only that, you had Baby Cox on the vocals, and did you notice what she was doing? There was no words. She was, as a vocalist, was emulating the instrumentalists. So now we have a complete turnaround by this point. And it's pretty quick in the music if you look at it from a chronological standpoint. So you have just a few sets ago, we were talking about King Oliver emulating the blues vocalist to such a point that he was trying to make a wah-wah sound out of his trumpet to literally make it speak to make it talk, to make it sound as if it were pronouncing words when he played. And now we have vocalists who are turning around and they're trying to sound like trumpet players. Baby Cox not only growled with her vocals, but she also just made up words. So that's a nod to Louis Armstrong and that scat kind of vocal. Not to mention, Duke Ellington, from a theoretical standpoint of the blues, there's a blue section in there, but there's a whole lot going on. And it's more than just a separate section a la St. Louis Blues the way that W.C. Handy wrote it. All of this is together. This is an evolution. This comes from Jelly Roll Morton's you know, uh, intro of the funeral dirges to the way that W.C. Handy kind of wrote these separate sections to like you know, St. Louis blues and the harmonies that we heard in Basin Street and Tishomingo blues onto these harmonies that we heard like in Singing the Blues by Bix Beiderbecke. And now we have a complete separate thing altogether that's all one song. We have this minor thing and we have chromatics with a clarinet and we have full arrangements and then we have a separate little blues section in which the soloists are soloing over what sounds like a you know a, a 12 bar blues section with that one four and five chord but then you also have vocalists who are emulating instrumentalists and then there's these growling trumpets so you can see or hear that we are evolving the groups are bigger the plan and the scheme is much more dense than just a one four five chord but that feeling is still there and that's what we're going to get to on this next set. You're listening to the Dr. Jazz Podcast. Mm-hmm. 
and welcome to the swing era. Yes, we started off the set with the great Django Reinhardt and Minor Swing, recorded November 25th, 1937, which features, of course, Stefan Grappelli on the violin and Django on the guitar. It's very interesting because here the guitar was one of the central instruments of the beginning of the blues. I mean, we heard it with Sun House, and we heard it with Teddy Bunn when he was playing with the Port of Harlem Jazzmen with Sidney Bechet from the very first set of this podcast. And now here is this, you know, gypsy from Europe, um, and he is, I believe, Belgium, you know, France, Belgium area, and he is just totally... He, he just oozes that European technical virtuosity. But yet, he's a gypsy, so there's this, you know, this underside. There's this, you know, rougher side, this more animated feeling of the blues. And it, it's definitively swing music because it's got that sort of rhythm but all of his bends and his you know things are very bluesy but then he's also very technically proficient and that's the European side of things so I would venture to say that this is one of the reasons that Django Reinhardt is considered one of the greatest in all of jazz history because he's very much like Louis Armstrong just on a different side of things. When he solos, it's truly an event. He's not just making the changes and playing it safe. Here's this gypsy from Europe who, by the way, he through a, a, a fire incident, accident, he, he was only left with his left hand uh, having facility to really play the guitar with two fingers. So all those lines that you're hearing Django play, he's doing with only two fingers in his left hand because his hand was burned in like a caravan fire. So he's got extremely good rhythm. He's got these blues inflections, but he's also got this virtuosity. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Like Louis Armstrong, but he's doing it on the guitar, which is the central blues instrument. Django is one of the greatest, and that's why. And... Hopefully you dug it just as much as I did because that is one of my all-time favorite Django songs, Minor Swing. Um, <clears throat> after that, we heard some big band music. So one of the, much like what I uh, I made a, a, you know an alliteration to earlier, um, a comparison to 50s music and how that was all based on the 1-4-5 chord, the big band era certainly made a lot of hits off of the blues progression and with a bigger sound too. And sadly, not all of it was as inventive um, as Duke Ellington's orchestra. So, but give credit where credit is due. Um, We heard the Glenn Miller Orchestra with In the Mood a tune written by Joe Garland and Andy Razaf. By the way, Andy Razaf is one of the ones who uh, collaborated with 
many of the hits for Fats Waller. So, little factoid there. In um, the Move was recorded August 1st, 1939. It was originally given to Artie Shaw and his orchestra, but it was six and a half minutes, and that's too long for a 78 you know, record, Victrola record. So Glenn Miller arranged it. He had this little intro that he wrote. What does this sound like? Does this sound like something like you've heard before on one of these past sets on the podcast? He, re- he arranged and he composed an intro. And then here come the 12 bar blues. And then he goes to the four chord. Back to the one. To the five. Back to the one. So. Now we have a return. I kind of alluded to this in the beginning of the podcast. Now there's this return to a simpler, simplified 1-4-5 progression with these little intro hooks and these little outro hooks to, you know, um, basically not... in a way, it, it, it's to dress up the fact that it's just a 1-4-5 progression, as simple as that is. But it kind of dresses it up a little bit more when you have a written intro and outro. So that's why you have the volume um, antics that he would use at the end where they get softer and softer and softer and softer. And then they get loud, right? So um, it's all dressing up the fact that it's much more basic than what Duke Ellington or Big Spiderbeck or Louis Armstrong or any of those guys, you know, who was playing Basin Street Blues or Tishomingo Blues or St. Louis Blues was doing. So it makes it a lot easier for the soloists and it it's easier for the listeners to relate to because now it's simplified. And a lot of people call it uh, a vanilla treatment because at this point in time you had a lot of very successful white big bands Glenn Miller was one the Dorsey brothers you know Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey Artie Shaw Benny Goodman was known as the king of swing right but a lot of them were still using these very basic one four five blues charts that were just dressed up by having interesting intros and outros. So, but one thing that we heard right after the Glenn Miller Orchestra was another tune that was recorded on July 7th, 1937. So the same year, in fact, previous to Django Reinhardt that we heard, was the Count Basie Orchestra. <clears throat> and... We heard One O'Clock Jump. And One O'Clock Jump is one of the anthems of the big band era. And we heard uh, some of the major, major soloists. Um, Lester Young, Buck Clayton, Joe Jones, Walter Page, um, Freddie Green, and Count Basie, the All-American Rhythm Section. What's interesting about uh, Count Basie's version of One O'Clock Jump is 
it was never really written down. So now we're kind of devolving a little bit. It is a 1-4-5 progression. Uh, but Basie came from Kansas City. Actually, Basie was born in, in Red Bank, New Jersey, but he cut his teeth by joining the Benny Moten Orchestra, and that's where the Count Basie Orchestra was born, was through the Blue Devils in Kansas City. So that's Kansas City Swing, which is different than what a lot of the big bands are doing. And it's impeccable timing, and that rhythm section is just killer. But getting back to 1 o'clock jump, even though it's just a 1-4-5 progression, it was a head chart. Now, what is a head chart? A head chart means where Glenn Miller wrote everything down. By the way, the solos were even written down for In the Mood because he wanted it to be a hit. So the economy and sales is what drove Glenn Miller to arrange In the Mood. But One O'Clock Jump was kind of composed on the spot, which actually aligns itself much more so uh, to the way a lot of early jazz in New Orleans began. So somebody would just say, okay, we're in B-flat. And then they would just come up with a riff, and the rhythm section would just be, you know, vamping and a B-flat 12-bar blues, 1-4-5. And then somebody likes the riff, and let's say a trumpet player plays this riff, and then some of the rest of the trumpet players, they have good ears. So they start hearing what that trumpet player, let's say Buck Clayton, is doing. So they add to that, and, and, and they basically they harmonize it, or they play it all in unison. And then the saxes say, oh, well, I got a great counter melody to that, so here, I'll play this underneath. So the saxes start playing something, and then, you know, they start harmonizing. And then the trombones have got their own thing. So basically, this all just came out on the spot. And it's during one of those gigs where, you know, they had to play for like six hours straight. So if you ever wonder why Basie is so simplistic, it's because, well, if you had to play six hours, you wouldn't kill yourself either. Um... But they just made up this song, and the crowd loved it. And this one guy asked him, he said, what do you call that? And he, Pacey looks at the clock, and it's close to 1 o'clock. He's like, oh, the 1 o'clock jump. <laughs> well, it stuck. And many other big bands covered it as well, including Benny Goodman. And he had a big hit with it. So, And like I said, it is one of the anthems for the swing era. And yet... It's all just based on one, four, five blues. So there's a kind of a de-evolution going on here in the big band era. It's much more commercial based, uh, but it doesn't matter. And that's the reason I chose Glenn Miller and, and Count Basie is because whether you have somebody who is arranging every note that you hear or you have a band that's able to come up with a head arrangement on the spot and just remember it night after night the point is both were successful and whether you write every note out or you just come up with it off the top of your head it's still a blues it's still a basic one four five blues now part of the reason for the simplicity was because the groups were bigger now we're not talking about five six or even seven members in a band we're talking sixteen to twenty so when you get that many members in a group together, you're going to have to simplify things. So naturally, the de-evolution went back to a 1-4-5 progression. 
of the blues. So here's the yo-yo effect starting. But we're about to snap back and go way further than what we have before. But first, we're going to listen to how soloists start reacting whenever they have to play behind a blues singer. Coming up on the next set, don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Dr. Jazz Podcast. Billie Holiday is one of a handful of really great jazz singers. Her blues are poetic, highly intense. Playing with her here today are some of the musicians who accompanied her back in the 30s and some of the greatest jazz records ever made. Among the musicians, Roy Eldridge and Doc Cheatham on trumpets, Coleman Hawkins, Lester Young and Ben, <clears throat> ben Webster on saxophone, Vic Dickinson on trombone, Jerry Mulligan on baritone sax, Mal Waldron at the piano, Milt Hinton, Hinton on bass, Danny Barker on guitar, and O.C. Johnson on the drums. Billy Holiday. The blues to me is like being very sad, very sick, going to church, being very happy. There's two, two kinds of blues. There's happy blues and there's sad blues. I don't think I ever sing the same way twice. I don't think I ever sing the same tempo. One night's a little bit slower, next night is a little bit brighter. It's going how I feel. I don't know, the blues is sort of a mixed up thing. You just have to feel it. Anything I, I do sing, it's, it's part of my life. My man don't love me. He treats me oh so mean. treats me awful mean He's the lowest man That I've ever Yeah. 
and he starts in to love me He is so fine
Well, if that seemed <laughs> completely different from one another, you're right. Um, a lot of TNT in that set. So let's just take it piece by piece. Let's start with the first song that we heard. We heard Fine and Mellow by one of the greatest singers of all time, regardless of genre, and that's Miss Billie Holiday, better known as Lady Day. And that nickname was given to her by Prez, the president of the tenor saxophone, Lester Young. And we heard Fine and Mellow, which was taken from The Sound of Jazz, in 1959, I believe, for CBS uh, television. And we got to hear a little anecdote from Lady Day in the beginning of how she feels about the blues and how there's happy blues, there's sad blues. It's kind of a mixed-up thing. You know, she never sings things the same way twice, she said, etc., etc. And that's really a reflection of a jazz mentality of the blues. Because... The idea of jazz is that you can't do things the same way twice, even if you tried to, if you're truly improvising. So, she's got a mentality uh, of a jazz musician. And and some people put Billie Holiday in a, in a blues camp. Other folks put Billie Holiday in a jazz camp. You can put her in whatever camp you want. She's an awesome, awesome musician, an awesome singer. Um, and we heard a lot of great soloists behind her, which is, I bet, I, I, the way I figured it, it was the best way to encapsulate the idea that soloists throughout the 40s and um, the end of the swing era, more of a combo mentality, a small group mentality started to emerge. Uh, a lot more attention and focus was less on what hit song there was from the big bands um, and more attention was paid to how virtuosic a soloist could be. For instance, um, a lot of the big band leaders, besides having their big band, I mean, they were kind of double dipping. Um, besides having their big bands that went on tour, they would also have smaller groups. Uh, probably the most famous of this would be Benny Goodman's Quartet. You know, uh, Benny Goodman was not only known as the King of Swing, um, he also had uh, a great quartet, which included him, himself, Benny Goodman on clarinet, Gene Krupa on drums, Teddy Wilson on the piano, and Lionel Hampton on the vibraphone. And just the four of them would play in a small group setting or a combo setting. Um, so if, if you want to really use um, classical terms, a chamber group, if you will. <laughs> and um, they would play the, you know, just w what was considered standards, you know, uh, Body and Soul, Ain't Misbehavin', Whispering, tunes like that, and blues. Woody Herman also had a group that was a small group, and he also had a big band as well. Uh, Artie Shaw had the Gramercy Five. Uh, Count Basie had the Kansas City Seven. Um, yeah, and so there was a lot of these smaller groups, and not only leaders, but uh, other just members of big bands had their own, like, small outfits. Uh, Buck Clayton had a small outfit. Lester Young had a small outfit. Sweets Edison, you know, participated. Roy Eldridge participated in little groups here and there. Coleman Hawkins. Um, and so a lot more attention was starting to focus on the soloist. 
So that thing that we heard with Louis Armstrong, how I said he's not the first, but he's the first to make it a real art form whenever he takes a solo, that mentality starts to creep back. And that's the evolution out of the de-evolution of the blues and jazz. How we were, and when we were in the swing era, how it went back to that basic one, four, five progression with little intros and outros. Well, now interest starts going into the art form of the soloist. And we hear tons of, of soloists and that their individualism is what champions who they are. And that's what we got to get all the way around back to point. That's what we got to hear behind Billy Holiday. We heard Ben Webster. We heard Roy Eldridge. We heard Coleman Hawkins. We heard Lester Young and Jerry Mulligan. And maybe Vic Dickinson or Dickie Wells on trombone. And the point is, is that specifically the saxophone players, just the four, Let's just kind of take that as a microcosm here. Coleman Hawkins, Lester Young, Ben Webster, and Jerry Mulligan all sound completely different. Lester Young doesn't use a lot of notes, but he sounds like a vocalist on his instrument. Where have we heard that before? King Oliver, right? And it's bluesy. It's definitively a jazz blues. You know, one, four, five with a couple of turnarounds. So it's... Not completely basic, but it's it's relatively basic. It's a jazz blues, 12-bar blues. And Lady Day sings a verse, and then a solace comes in, you know. And so we get to hear Ben Webster, who's full of his fluffy notes and his feeling and his scoops. And then we hear Lester Young after Ben Webster, and he's he's telling a story as if he were a vocalist. beep ba 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 I mean, just beautiful lines. That's what makes Lester Young prez. That's what makes him a truly great soloist and what makes jazz an art form is that when you can take a basic blues and you can tell that kind of story in your solo, man. And then Roy Eldridge is screaming up on the trumpets. And Coleman Hawkins has got that bluesy, rough, you know, gut bucket kind of sound with his tenor solo. And then Jerry Mulligan totally changes the rhythm. The whole rhythm section changes behind Jerry Mulligan. And he's got all these, you know, like, harmonic lines that he's creating these, you know, substitutions for the chord changes. So the point is, is that soloists become a lot more the focal point and individualism is championed at this point in time in the evolution of the blues within the jazz idiom. Now, after the swing era came bebop. So the next track that we heard was Charlie Parker's Blues for Alice. And if it sounded like you didn't mean to, but you skipped way far ahead, that's kind of what it was like. So I'm glad I was able to give you that microcosm because... 
Charlie Parker and the Bebop Revolution just came overnight during the record band when during World War II. So instead of this big band sound and basic one four five, and you know you had a couple of cool soloists playing over the blues, now you've got a whole hell of a lot of chromaticism. You've got much faster rhythms and a lot of information packed into these solos. Not to mention, you have Charlie Parker, who is the 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 mad scientist that he is. He completely expounded the blues. Theoretically speaking. So if I'm going to geek out for a second, bear with me. If your typical blues in, let's say, the key of F, right? You have like F7 to B flat 7. Then you go back to F7. You stay on F7. Then you go to the 4 again. And you that's, you know, the 1 and the 4 chord, right? So then you go back to B flat. You stay on B flat. Then you go back to F. Then you go back to F. Then you go to the five chord, the C7, that down to the four chord, the B flat seven, and then you re, you resolve down to the one chord, which is the F7. And then at the very last bar, you have the five chord, which is the C7, which takes you back as a five one, in most music, right? Perfect authentic cadence, right? Five one. Well, if that's the basic blues, here's what Charlie Parker did. Charlie Parker says, oh, no, 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 we're not doing a dominant there at the beginning. We're going F major 7, and then we're going E flat half diminished to A dominant 7 to D minor 7 to G7. Then we're going to go C minor 7 to F7, which is a series of 2-5 progressions, by the way. And then, after we finally hit that C minor 7 to the F7, we're, then we finally hit the 4. We get... Because we've went all the way around the world, but now that it all lines up theoretically to hit the four. So in the fourth bar, we finally hit a B flat seven, but then we go B flat minor seven to E flat seven, then we go A minor seven to D seven, then we go A flat minor seven to D flat seven. Then instead of just hitting a five, we go a, a two five to make that five happen. We go a G minor seven to a C seven. And then we're going to do a turnaround. So we've got F major 7 to D minor 7 to G minor 7 back to C7, and then we're back to the top. So if everything I just told you sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook, that's actually the theory behind all the notes that you're hearing in Charlie Parker's solo to Blues for Alice that we just heard in the second song of that set. Yeah. That's the bebop revolution right there. It was completely a theoretical bomb that just went off. And that's the thing is because there was a record band, we didn't get to hear the, the beginnings of it. So it was already fully developed by the time the record band lifted after World War II. So, yeah. <laughs> and who was part of that bebop revolution? Charlie Parker, Kenny Clark, right? A very, very, very young Miles Davis. Um, you know, you had uh, Thelonious Monk. And they would all hang out at Minton's. And Thelonious Monk is who we heard last in that set. That last song that we heard was Mysterioso, which is, again, it's a 12-bar blues, but you get this weird thing. I mean, Monk was truly, Thelonious Sphere Monk was his birth name, and he was truly what I feel is the Stravinsky 
of jazz music because Monk altered everything. <laughs> Monk had this kind of seesaw melody with Mysterioso there. Boom, bing, 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 boom, bing. And he like ends on the tritone on that phrase for where the key center is. So it's this weird seesaw thing. And he's got tons of, of melodies that he wrote early on that are very, very much like this. Um, and he uses these odd intervals. And he likes to kind of hit these C. And then you go up an octave. And then you go to the C sharp above that. And then you play them together. And that, that's like these monk crunches, you know. And, he, and it, it's a minor second. But he's trying to hear that, that interval that's in between a minor second. So it's it, essentially it's trying to, he's trying to hear the interval between a B and a C. Even though they're the closest two uh, intervals you can play on the piano together. And then, of course, there's the sparse rhythmic solos that he does and, and the sparse comping that he plays behind soloists. So everything is different about Monk. So you have Charlie Parker who's expounded exponentially the blues progression and you have Thelonious Monk who is changing and turning what jazz is on its ear we are a far cry away fro folks from what we heard with king oliver merely imitating a blues vocalist we are a very far cry away from sun house we're exponentially away from even what sydney bechet was doing on his clarinet with the port of harlem jasmine but this is the evolution of the blues, and we're talking maybe 25 years, 30 years time period. Yeah, that's a quick evolution, folks. And we're not done. We've got a few more sets for you. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Dr. Jazz Podcast. Thank you. 
Thank you. 
All right. So <clears throat> three very different takes on the blues in that set. You remember when I was talking about with Billie Holiday, the importance and how the attention was starting to come to soloists and their individual individuality. Well, that had really heightened by the time the fifties started in jazz. You see, Charlie Parker, uh, unfortunately passed away in 1954. I want to say no 53. That's what it is. Um, maybe it was 54. But either way, he was 34 years old. And well, it had to be 54 because he was born in 20. So there you go. Um, but yeah, to die at 34, that was a major thing. And so jazz was forced to look for a new voice, a new, uh, a new direction because its martyr, so to speak, was gone. He had, you know, basically he died of heart failure from, you know, all of his struggles with heroin and all that. So, um, what happens? Well, they start to look at and, and treasure individuality at, in, in soloists in jazz, and it becomes much more of a small group sort of thing. Uh, there's still some big bands, but by the 50s, uh, we are really looking at in soloists and you buy an album if you're a jazz fan based on who the soloists are and they're usually the leaders or co-leaders of these small groups so with the first track that we heard we heard blue seven by Sonny rollins who's still alive who's still kicking um and it comes off of his 1956 album saxophone colossus which is just one of the greatest jazz albums of all time uh but he, he, this is worth noting. By the time you get to this album, there's only five tracks on the entire album. Because there are six and a half minutes, uh, another six and a half minutes, over a little over five minutes, a ten-minute tune. And then what we heard right there with Blue 7 is an eleven-minute tune. That's basically uh, a jazz basic blues. But instead of altering the, the, the chord changes the way that Charlie Parker did, um, Sonny Rollins just kind of manipulated his solo and the melody. So when he wrote the melody to Blue 7, he wrote all these very strange, uncomfortable tones within the melody. And it you could take that for the fact that he maybe learned that from Thelonious Monk because they did play together um, quite often in the, in the fifties and recorded together quite often, you know, in the fifties. So Thelonious Monk was not on this album, just to be clear. It was Sonny Rollins on the tenor sax, Tommy Flanagan on the piano, Doug Watkins on the bass and the great Max Roach on drums. And by this point, you know, Sonny had been playing with Max Roach in his outfit, uh, with Clifford Brown. So, uh, another great soloist, but it, it just goes to show that even though Sonny was doing some amazing things in his solos, um, he just felt free to, to basically play whatever tones that he wanted to within his solo. And he even uh, purposefully wrote uneasy songs, songs with a lot of um, color and a lot of 
odd harmony even within that melody to Blue 7. And then after that, we heard Interplay by Bill Evans. Now, Bill Evans is a harmonic genius. There's no doubt about that. Um, but Interplay comes off the album, Interplay, and it has Bill Evans on the piano, Freddie Hubbard on the trumpet, Jim Hall on the guitar, Percy Heath on bass, and Philly Joe Jones on drums. And what's interesting about that is that it's kind of a minor blues, but now you have these altered kind of changes on the minor blues as well as a counter melody that is written. So now we're writing counter melodies and these melodies uh, that are on altered changes of the blues. So when Bill Evans composed this tune, he thought in, in three levels, he thought not only melody that's different, but relative to the minor blues, but also different harmonies that work within the constructs of a minor blues progression, so to speak. And then he also wrote a counter melody. So now we're really thinking compositionally. Here's another evolution of the blues. Not just manipulating um, as a soloist the way that Sonny Rollins did with Blues 7, but now we're manipulating compositionally. In a, in, in a very altered way. So it's kind of like Charlie Parker light. It, it, it kind of yo-yos back and forth. It's more than what Jelly Roll Morton was doing, but it's not as extreme as what Charlie Parker was doing. Do you see where I'm getting at? And, of course, great solos abound. Um, yeah, it, it, it's... in, in it, it's an interesting alignment because now soloists and, and composers are thinking not only horizontally about what lines they're playing, but they're also thinking vertically. Um, so jazz is literally going in all directions at this point. And that's a great segue to the last song that we just heard, which is Turnaround by Ornette Coleman. This came out in 1959. And uh, February 23rd, 1959, in fact. Um, I'm sorry, January 16th, 1959. Um, and it comes off the album, Tomorrow is the Question, the new music of Ornette Coleman. And Ornette Coleman is on the alto sax, Don Cherry's on the trumpet, Red Mitchell is on the bass, and Shelly Mann is on the drums, who is not... Always the drummer and bassist for Ornette Coleman. Eventually he found Billy Higgins and Charlie Hayden and his classic quartet. Uh, but that's much later. So Turnaround is very much steeped in the blues, but yet this kind of music was called free jazz. And it meant that the band, after playing the head or the melody, was free to improvise in whatever direction that they wished to go. Now, that being said, there's definitively a blues element in the, the way that they solo because you hear those bends, those scoops, those falls, those wails, and the melody is definitively blues. And it goes up to the fourth. So, but... It's like the one, four, five is implied. 
And then you're free to go wherever you'd like to go during your solos. Now, Red Mitchell did not necessarily go too far out. He didn't jump into the deep end of the pool, per se. Uh, but Ornette and Don Cherry were very adventurous, and that was really just a foreshadowing of things to come in albums like The Shape of Jazz to Come and the such, you know, for the Atlantic label. But this was on the contemporary label, and it's still blues, but now we've evolved to complete freedom. Well, relative relative freedom, so to speak. Um, and this is something that, you know, is very integral in Ornette's music. Ornette comes from the Fort Worth area of Texas and is very steeped in the blues, and he was actually very steeped in bebop on top of that. Not many people know that, but Ornette was actually an evil bebopper. I mean, he was he, he, he could bop, man. But he artistically chose freedom in his writing and recording pursuits. And it, it, it's very sticky, you know, to, when you get into this area and the evolution of the blues. He's just as important as Charlie Parker, but in a different way. Charlie Parker went to the nth degree of setting up all these chord changes, which I, I went over. But Ornette is just as integral into the evolution of jazz music, specifically the blues and jazz music, because he is he embraces full abandon. So there's merit on both sides of these things. But once again, you have to ask yourself, with, is what you just heard with the tune Turnaround by Ornette Coleman even remotely close to Sunhouse or Robert Johnson or King Oliver or even, for that matter, Scott Joplin and Ragtime? Boogie Woogie? Well, it's about to get a little bit weirder. So, hang on, we've got one more set in this special spotlight of the evolution of the blues in jazz. Remember, you can find the Dutch Jazz Podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes Podcast, and Stitcher. We also have a website so you'll know exactly what you're ordering if you like what you hear. It's Dr. Jazz Podcast, D-R-J-A-Z-Z Podcast.wordpress.com. Love to hear some feedback from you. Let's get to some our last set of music.
Wow. Okay, so what we just heard were three classics from 1959. Ornette kind of broke the watershed with the, the turnaround tune that we heard to end the last set. All three of these came from the year 1959, and it was a watershed year, a golden year for jazz. And I've done a specific podcast on 1959. Check that out. There's also been documentaries on the year 1959. I've written articles. There's been articles. It's an important year. Trust me. So what we heard first was Goodbye Pork Pie Hat by Charles Mingus from his album Mingus Uh Um. And that's a landmark album because 1959 unfortunately saw the deaths of two major jazz stars. Billie Holiday and Lester Young within months of each other, to be honest. And it was such a sad part to the community because we'd already lost Charlie Parker a few years earlier, as I'd mentioned. But, and Clifford Brown, too, in the 50s. Very sad. So what it is, Charles Mingus felt compelled to write a tune for Lester Young, and Lester Young always wore a pork pie hat. So it's called Goodbye Pork Pie Hat, you know, a theme for Lester Young, and completely altered blues changes. We are not talking about a, a one-four-five progression or even a minor blues. It is completely altered in form and in chords. So, I mean, trust me, you can hear the difference. It doesn't sound like your typical. 12 bar blues and then you have all of these extended techniques that the soloists are using like flutter tonguing triple tonguing and ultimate harmonic sensibility within their solos so that's a complete evolution we've basically disregarded the 12 bar blues for something that is completely blues centric in feeling and in the, the sense of loss, which is, it harks to the blues, but it's not theoretically anything close to that 12-bar blues. And then we moved from that into Odd Time Signatures with the Dave Brubeck Quartet from their 1959 landmark album, Time Out. We heard Blue Rondo a la Turk, which starts out with this melody in 9-8 time. Now it's one two one two one two one two three, and then it does that again, and then it's one two three one two three one two three. So it's da 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 one two one two one two one two three one two one two one two one two three one two three one two three one two three. So you go through all of that, which Dave Brubeck says is just the equivalent of four four time, when you get to like Turkey and Turkish music, but hence blue, Rondo a la Turk. So then you get to the the soloist section, and it's the twelve bar blues with interludes. So you have Paul Desmond on the saxophone, also accompanied by Eugene Wright and Joe Morello, by the way, um, starting the blues. And it's like pause on the twelve bar blues progression. Go back to the so you have this 12-bar blues progression that's interrupted, so to speak, by this 9-8 time. 
And so now we are in a complete evolution away from your 12-bar blues because now, and, and, and even for that matter, a complete evolution away from even what W.C. Handy was doing with the St. Louis blues where you had two separate sections, but at least you had an intact 12-bar blues section. But now you have a snippet of the 12-bar blues four bars before you go to this 9-8 interruption, so to speak. And then you have another, the next four bars. So bars 5, 6, 7, and 8, followed by another 9-8 interruption. Then you have bars 9, 10, 11, and 12, followed by a 9-8 interruption. But then, when it's actually time to solo, you get a full 12-bar blues. So they're just playing the blues when it's time for a full solo. It's an interesting innovation and it's an interesting evolution uh, of the blues into jazz. That we can incorporate Turkish music and 9-8 time signatures uh, surrounding this 12-bar blues. So it's completely different than what King Oliver was doing or even arranging or compositionally speaking, it's different than what W.C. Handy was doing. It's different than the way that Glenn Miller arranged things, like intros and outros to the 12-bar blues. It's different than the way Jelly Roll Morton incorporated uh, a minor funeral dirge before going to the blues. And it's different even than what Duke Ellington was doing with the mooch, with all his chromatics. And yet it's, theoretically speaking, simpler and simplified from what Charlie Parker was doing theoretically with his bebop experimentations on the the chords and the way he manipulated those chords into the blues. So it is a complete evolution in time and in the way that we uh, intake what we hear through the blues in jazz. And then we ended the set with one of the greatest known blues songs in jazz in the whole jazz canon. And that's All Blues by Miles Davis from the greatest jazz-selling album of all time, 1959, Kind of Blue, which features Miles Davis on the trumpet, John Coltrane on the tenor sax, Cannonball Adderley on the alto sax, Bill Evans on the piano, who we heard from earlier, Paul Chambers on the bass, and Jimmy Cobb on the drums. So All Blues is um, 6-8 time signature, which most blues are in 4-4. Four, four. Even Ornette, when he was playing Turnaround, uh, even though that was free jazz, quote-unquote, uh, it was in 4-4 four, four time. But all blues is in 6-8 six, six, time. Now, there's something to be said for that, because even when... We, in what we just heard previous to that with Dave Brubeck in his 9-8 time signature. The soloing parts were still in 4-4 blues. But what Miles Davis did is he said, no, 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 no. We're going to solo in 6-8. And it's still blues. 
So you have Coltrane and Cannonball in harmony going da ba do dee da do and Miles is just floating the melody in six eight on top. So to solo in six eight, that's completely different than dressing up uh, an area around it in six eight and then just soloing in typical four four time. Like the way Brubeck did. Even though that was an evolution to itself, this is completely different. This is Miles sitting there saying, no, 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 no. We're going to do this in 6-8, and we're going to solo in 6-8. Now, it's not going to be a straight blues. We're going to have some altered changes and some altered extensions, like some sharp 11s and stuff that go along with it. So, time signature, he's evolving what the blues were. Theoretically, quarterly speaking, he's evolving what the blues were. Not to the extent that Charles Mingus did, but Charles Mingus's Goodbye Port by Hat was still in 4-4 time. So you've got minor alterations, but you've got major time signature shifts and alterations. And keep in mind that the musicians, here's the best part, the musicians never saw any of this previous to the recording date. Miles just brought in a couple of scraps of paper and says, yeah, so this is going to be a tune called So What? And this is going to be a tune called All Blues. You know, so that's what it was. So it's truly, going back to that previous vein that we were discussing, an illumination, an appreciation of the individuality of soloists. Because Miles surrounded himself with phenomenal soloists on that date in Bill Evans, Coltrane, and Cannonball, and himself. But to trust your soloists enough and their knowledge of harmony to throw a 6-8 blues at them in 1959 with altered changes speaks volumes to the amount of trust that you have in these musicians and to their theoretical know-how and knowledge of the blues. And now we've evolved from the beginning of the blues to 1959 in jazz. Thank you for listening. Stick around. We've got part two coming soon at you. Thank you for listening. We do love you madly. Please tell all your friends we're on SoundCloud, iTunes, Podcast, and Stitcher. Check out the website Dr. Jazz Podcast, D-R-J-A-Z Podcast.wordpress.com and until next time ashes to ashes dust to dust y'all be good now because in jazz we trust. Down.